I'm Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Steve Grosso. Tonight on Fast, the J-Pow pop. Stocks rally to all-time highs as the Fed chief gives the markets another all-clear. We'll break down the record move straight ahead. Plus, we're following all the action in shares of Lordstown Motors, the stock touching after-hours lows. The company just made comments about that short seller report claiming fraud. We'll bring you all the details. And later, tonight's Fast Take, did U.S. taxpayers get fleeced by bailing out the airline industry. Did it even need to happen? We're digging in on the sky-high outrage. But we start tonight's show just as we did last night with a question. Does the market finally believe Jay Powell? Now, if you watched us yesterday, we asked why no one seems to believe the Fed chief when he says rate hikes aren't coming anytime soon. But today, he couldn't have been clearer. Powell saying the Fed isn't even thinking about thinking about hiking rates until 2024 at the earliest. And when they do finally move, the market will have ample warning. His comments reigniting the record rally with the Dow and S&P closing at all-time highs. So does this meme really say it all? All right. Just to reiterate, this is fake, obviously. It's a deep fake. But does its meaning ring true? Guy. I love the memes. I, you know, I love those and the gifs are my favorite. And I, I, I guess the answer, going back to last night, it depends on what market you're talking about. I mean, the stock market absolutely believes him. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm somewhat hesitant to say it, but that's something, you know, I know Tim and Karen and Steve have been saying for a long time, don't fight these guys. And the stock market continues on its merry way. The flip side of that coin is, you know, if 10-year yields are an indication, the bond market doesn't believe him because here we are at sort of, you know, north of 1.6% in the 10 years. So one market does, the other market doesn't. Right now, uh, the U.S. equity market is winning. And for the purposes of that show, our show tonight, that's probably good enough. At the same time, when rates get high enough, Tim, we've seen it in the past when they touch 6.7, six, six, which they did this morning when they go towards 1.7, um, the markets have a little bit of a tantrum. So even though the bond market may not believe Jay Powell, eventually the stock markets take the lead of the bond market. So the two are, in fact, intertwined. So what, what do you think is the answer at this point? Is Jay Powell making it abundantly clear and, and clear to the markets and market participants that there is no intention on raising rates until not even forecasted uh, you know, economic metrics come true, but they actually have to see it in the present. Yeah, very backward looking, very subjective. Uh, we've been rickrolled twice this week on Fast Money, so there's a lot going on. Um, and I think you have a case here where uh, also the concept of the, the absolute level of, of bond yields on the 10-year, uh, at what point are, are equities in trouble? And I think that's a maybe a bigger debate on some level because we just don't know. Um, I think the, the, the conversation that uh, the Fed may have lost control of the long end of the curve is the right one to have. Um, I think from from Fed funds, obviously, out to five or six years, it's pretty clear that uh, today's action tells you that the Fed is able to jawbone. Here's something else about today people aren't really talking about. They're out there saying they're going to continue to buy at least 80 billion treasuries and 40 billion mortgage backs, at least. So again, the signs of the bond tapering um, is something that's also really tough to understand, especially when the Fed really upgraded the economy, um, tells you that a four and a half percent unemployment rate by the end of 2021 um, from, you know, not terribly far off the record lows that we, you know, of all time that we went into the pandemic with is still not good enough. Um, so look, the Fed was very clear today. 
Um, I'm most troubled by a VIX that's got a 19 handle. Honestly, it you know fell 8 percent, and and the, the the volatility this low tells me equities actually should be a, a little bit weary in the next couple of days. We're pre-pandemic levels when it comes to the VIX. Karen, um, what did you make of today, and, and does it change your your view on the markets? Well, I'm always long, but I just have this image of of Jay Powell s- saying. You know what? I've taken the bull market hostage. I'm not going to hurt the bull market and the bond market yelling, let the bull market go. And then Powell says, if anybody makes a sudden move, the bull market dies. And I think that's sort of a standoff that he's trying to reach with the bond market. Right. We saw it briefly what happened last month. He had a lot of weird things in the bond market. He had a lot of sudden movements and the stock market really didn't like that at all. But, you know, as Tim and Guy said, he couldn't have been more clear uh, about how dovish he is. Now, I don't know if the data will force him to do something earlier. He did say we're not going to do it until the data makes us do it. But if we start to see data change, well, then we'll have to think, all right, he could be made to do it sooner. I don't really know. I don't. It, it wasn't so shocking to me that the general rhetoric, I don't think it was so shocking to anyone. But, um, you know, good for banks, good for uh, I guess it was no giant surprise, more dovish than I thought, but certainly we all thought that he was dovish going in. I had actually, I want to hear what he has to say about the supplemental um, leverage ratio. Right. That's important for banks, but he, he punted on that, and twice. we'll see in a couple of days what he has to say about uh, that. Yeah, twice yeah. he, did you say? Yeah, twice he punted. He made it very clear he wasn't going to say anything. They're going to say something in a couple of weeks, and he's not going to say anything about it any time earlier. In terms of the market reaction today, Steve, we certainly saw the reaction maybe um, most sharply, and I I use that word loosely because the moves in the market weren't really that amplified at all. Um, But in technology shares, we we saw that gain some traction. What did you make of the Fed overall? So your first question was, does the market believe the Fed? And just by the jump in the market, the S&P jumped 1% intraday on Powell. That means to me they don't believe the Fed that he's not going to raise rates. Now, switch over to the 10-year. Going back to August, the 10-year on a percent basis has rallied 223% on a percent basis. So that is a huge move that the Fed can't control, to Tim's point. So when you look at the overall market, the overall market seems to have a little bit of time digesting whether or not we're going to go fully into value where you see IWM in the last month is up off the bounce 13%. Q's up 8%. Spiders up 6%. So we see that they're still buying value on this with the overall economy just rearing to get going. But when you look at the, the Fed trying to talk it over, they've always been perplexed with where inflation is. So now you're finally getting what you wanted So it should be kudos to the Fed. They finally got there. And I think the market should still be bought at this level. All right. Let's bring in Steve Leisman, who, of course, is listening to uh, Jay Powell's every word, asked a question. You actually asked about what you proposed yesterday the Fed could consider doing, which would be taper and twist. How did you interpret his answer to that question? Because he seemed to be swatting it away like a fly, Steve. Yeah, uh, he he didn't really want to. I'm sort of confused by that. Um, 
And and I'll tell you a lot. There's a lot of commentary on his answer or lack of answer to my question, simply because so much of the bond market is riding on this notion as to whether the Fed will come in and at what level and how he would prefer to whether whether he likes the idea of coming in. He wouldn't answer. He said the tools are the tools we have. Um, and, And he didn't really want to go there. He seemed to not rule it out, but not suggest he wanted to do it and didn't really want to talk about it, despite um, what I thought was a respectful follow-up, Melissa. I, I, I think I was respectful, but he didn't uh, really want to talk very much about it, kind of left intact the possibility. But um, I will say this, Melissa, I, I, I am struck, and this is a reporter's notebook thing here, by the conviction of Jay Powell. Um, you know, he looked the, the, the bond market in the face, and he looked at all the commentary and concern about inflation, and he told us he was going to stick to his guns. And he stuck to his guns. And I actually saw something today I thought I'd never see. A 6% forecast from the Fed for GDP growth. A 3.5% unemployment rate forecast for two years down the road. And the Fed not changing interest rates. Today's an historic day, Melissa. We saw this policy that Powell laid out several months ago for the first time come into numbers that we had never seen before what we call a reaction function from the Federal Reserve that is as dovish as anything perhaps in history. What I think was interesting as well, Stephen, in in that very moment for the Fed is that the Fed has gone from being proactive in terms of wanting to have easy monetary policy and have it longer um, than maybe many wanted to, to basically broadcasting that it will now be a reactive Federal Reserve. It is going to wait to see that growth materialize. It is going to wait um, for inflation to get too hot before it does anything. And that seems to be a major change in the stance of the Fed. It it is. And when I first got into the business of covering the Federal Reserve, the idea of proactive or preemptive monetary policy was all the rage. And that was the idea that they were going to look at the forecast and set policy to the forecast. Powell's throwing that out. He's saying, you know what, we're going to react to the data when it comes. And I think the story here is the 10 million who are unemployed, and Powell is not forgetting about them. He is firmly orienting Fed policy, not towards what the bond market wants, but to the idea that we need to put those people back to work. Um, and that and that while they are out of work and in the process of getting back to work, it's going to be very hard to have an inflationary spike that lasts. And I think that is something that perhaps the bond market and maybe some of the stock market have misread. Yes, yeah, Steve. So Karen brought this up in a commentary earlier, and I apologize because she was probably going to ask this question, but I'll ask it. Supplement, supplemental leverage ratio, which I believe expires on March 31st. That was brought up, seemingly not answered. Not seemingly, it wasn't answered. Uh, any, any thoughts around that? So there was a change in the repo allotment for, uh, this is very in the weeds, but there was some indication they may not extend it because of what they did with the, for, basically for the money market funds, allowing them to come in for $80 billion of repo instead of 30 But I'll tell you, Guy, this is the wrong time for the Fed to be taking risk around something that seems to have worked, which is to really uh, allow the the banks to come in and not reserve against treasuries, which is stupid anyway, by the way, in normal times. Um, I would think the Fed is not is going to extend that expiration that allows the Fed or extend that that uh, uh, moratorium on the Fed on the banks having to reserve against these things. It would be uh, wouldn't make a lot of sense to me for a guy that's so interested in keeping markets calm, getting the economy back on track to take a risk around that. But 
I don't know. There was some indication they may not. I think they will. All right. Steve's going to stick around. We want to get more reaction to the Fed from a former Fed insider. Joining us now is Richard Fisher, former Dallas Fed president and a CNBC contributor. Uh, Richard, good to see you. Thank you, Melissa. And good happy, to see you. Yeah, happy St. Patrick's Day. You got your green tie on there. Um, I want to I want to go right to what Steve was was raising um, just just moments ago, and that is the Fed going from a preactive or proactive Fed to a reactive Fed. How important is this, if it is important, and is there a danger to this? It is important, and there is a risk here, because you have to remember, it takes a while for monetary policy to work its way into the real economy. I'm not talking about market reaction. And if you are reactive, first of all, data is out of date by the time you get it, even though we're getting better at getting contemporary data. If you are reactive, it's going to take time to work into the economy. And I think that's the risk, rather than anticipating and using your judgment going forward as to what's likely to happen. If, let's say, the bond market, I agree with what's been said so far, I think the bond market, the market determines the 10-year rate. If they begin to price in some inflationary pressure, the Fed then does its work, gets its data, finds out there is more than transitory inflation at play, then they have to tighten or whatever they need to do. It takes a while to work its into the economy, and it'll therefore be, I think, less effective, or at least that's a risk that they're running, to answer your question. One quick point, Melissa. I noticed when Steve asked his question, that was the one time during this press conference where Jay Powell was super relaxed, super confident. He looked down, he read the answer. He anticipated the question. They're not going to deviate one iota in saying that kind of response. Lael Brainerd did it a week ago at the Council on Foreign Relations in that open meeting she had. They're reading the answer because it shows how sensitive they are to market reaction. Uh, hey, Richard, hey, Richard. Let me ask you something Richard. about inflation. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Um, So there's a lot of talk about transitory inflation and how far they would let it go. And uh, but coming back ultimately to this two percent. So how far do you think they would let it go before they felt a need to do something? You know, I don't know. And you wouldn't ask that question. But here's the problem. If you're a supply side economist, you're also thinking about the kind of cost pressures that are now underway. Raw materials, freight, I can go on and on and on. However, a business operator also has to worry about other new costs that are going to be imposed by higher taxes, perhaps unionization, minimum wage efforts, et cetera. So on top of what they're already seeing, they are likely or possibly going to price in a reaction. And it's very rare in my experience to have businesses price in an increase and then take it back. So he's right in terms of compared to the low levels at which we were a year ago. But the problem is it's the dynamic of going forward and how do businesses react? So that'll determine how transitory it is. I think what the market is doing, particularly the 10-year and a five-year onward, is questioning that premise. Will we have transitory inflation or will it become more embedded? This isn't four or 5% inflation. I'm just saying above the two plus level, which he won't articulate, and I understand why he won't. But you could build in a behavioral reaction here, and then they have to take the time to respond and it takes time for that to work its way through the economy, which means it could feed into itself. That's the point I'm trying to make. Still so with me? Richard, I, I just want to ask you, the, 
There's two Steves on the panel, so apologize for that. Leesman, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. I, I actually want to throw this out to Richard, but also to everybody, if it's okay, because here's the deal, I think. When we talk about this preemptive versus reactive thing, Richard, isn't the Fed that hasn't decided, look, we, we were preemptive before and we never got to our 2% threshold. Now we're going to be no. reactive because we don't want to stop the market and that inflation from happening. But that <clears throat> changes the dynamic for the bond in the stock market. Before, it was like you had the Fed out front, you know, kind of whacking the weeds so you could walk through the forest. And now the Fed's not there. The Fed is saying, we're behind the curve on this. We are not going to protect you from, from, from this inflation thing because we want it to get back up. So it changes the dynamic for investors while at the same time they're changing the whole policy outlook here. Yeah, the, the end point is 2%. He made that clear. You see it in every dot plot. It always comes out at 2%. They don't want to see it run above that significantly for long. Uh, but again, it's a really a question of whether or not they have the kind of control. What I'm more interested in, though, is how the market perceives this. And what we've been seeing is started out in this show. The way the market has been pricing bonds from five years out has raised doubt as to whether or not they actually can control things to the extent they would like to. That's my point. All right. Gentlemen, we've got to leave it there. Great discussion. Thank you, Steve Leisman. Richard Fisher, thanks to you. And let us wish you a happy birthday in advance tomorrow. Is, as I understand it, your 72nd birthday. So happy birthday to you, Richard. Richard the odometer Fisher. clicks 72 tomorrow. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Good to speak with you. Um, it seems, um, Tim, that the more dovish Jay Powell yes. gets, it allows the bond market to go higher in yields on the 10-year. Without question. And, and five-year five inflation break-evens are at 13-year highs. And, and so we've all just gotten done saying he can't control the, the long end. The, the, the question is, does the, does the, how is the Fed measuring inflation the way the market is? In other words, what's the Fed think about what the market's doing with inflation right now? Um, and does the Fed have a view on absolute levels of the 10-year, not as it relates to you know, equity performance, but, but you know, relative to, to their overall construct and relative to where we were going into the pandemic? And, and again, I just think, you know, I know the labor market's the most important thing, but I, I think the dynamic of, of, of saying 4.5% at the end of 2021 still isn't good enough, uh, along with two other three conditions that have to be met when they haven't met any of these conditions on inflation in the past. That, to me, reiterated today, three conditions mm -hmm. is extraordinary. One thing that Richard Fisher said struck me in particular, and that was when companies pass on price increases, they rarely take it back. So this notion of transitory inflation, can it actually be transitory? Just today at a Bank of America conference, we heard 3M say that costs for everything from materials to labor to logistics were two times more than they anticipate, that they have anticipated. And so what does 3M do? We don't know yet. But if they pass on that price increase, Guy, you think they're going to take it back when materials come back down, when labor comes back down? I, I don't know. Yeah, and I'm sorry about the dogs. That's the rhetorical question of all time. You know the answer. The short answer is no, they won't, because they'll condition people to pay those prices. And then when prices do come down, they'll leave them be, and then they'll be able to raise the next time around. So transitory to me, I don't want to use a bad word on this show, but you know what? It, it's a BS thing completely. So there's nothing transitory. Inflation is here. I think the Fed understands that. And the fact that they can say on one hand that they're data dependent and on the other hand say they're not going to raise rates until 2023 to me is mystifying and maddening at the same time. 
Coming up. Move over Walmart. There's a new retail king in town. The name one analyst says is a prime pick for the crown. But first, Lordstown Motors shares near after hours lows. As the company conference call is underway, they did just address the controversial report from short seller Hindenburg. We'll bring you the details when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. We are following a developing story on Lordstown Motors. The company making comments about that short seller report from Hindenburg Research shares are on the move in the after hour session now down by about three and a half percent. Let's get to Phil Lebeau who's got all the details. Phil. Hey, Melissa, right off the start of the conference call with analysts, which started uh, at 4.30 this afternoon, they addressed the Hindenburg Research Report, getting it out of the way, saying that they have been contacted, they have received a request from the SEC regarding the allegations that were raised by Hindenburg Research. And just to recap what those allegations were, they essentially say that Lordstown Motors misled investors by essentially overselling some of the pre-orders that they have seen uh, potential customers express interest in. In other words, these were not solid orders. There was no binding commitment. There was no deposit made. But according to Hindenburg, this was sold by Steve Burns when he would do interviews or when he would talk about the first uh, sales of the endurance pickup truck. They were portrayed by uh, Steve Burns as being more solid than they actually are. That's the accusation from Hindenburg Research. Uh, They also said that the board of directors will be forming a special committee to review the matter and that until the review by the board of directors is finished, they will have no further comment regarding the allegations from Hindenburg Research. Keep in mind, at the top of the call, they also went over the results, if you want to call them the results from the fourth quarter. This is the first financial report from Lordstown Motors since it completed a SPAC IPO. They had a loss of 23 cents. Uh, And remember, they are pre-revenue. They have not sold any vehicles yet, which, by the way, Steve Burns has made very clear in this conference call that they have not sold any vehicles. So what's next for Lordstown Motors? Well, you've got the Endurance going in beta production this month. So there will be 57 beta models that will be, some will go into crash testing, some will be tested in extreme conditions, some will go out to early potential customers for some review, and then they are expecting to start full production of the Endurance electric pickup truck in September. That cadence or that guidance from the company has not changed. You do not want to miss what we have in store for you tomorrow morning on Squawk Box. We will be talking first with Uh, First on CNBC with Steve Burns, the CEO of Lordstown Motors. And while they are not going to be commenting about the uh, SEC looking into these allegations from Hindenburg Research, he has a lot to say about the fact that he believes that they are taking the steps necessary to become a successful electric vehicle company and a successful automaker. But they've got a lot of hurdles that they have to overcome this year. So, Melissa, this is an interesting call from this perspective that he's been very careful to say over and over, these are pre-orders. These are potential customers. These are not signed contracts. No deposits have been made. And that, again, is at the heart of the allegations from Hindenburg Research. Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau in Chicago with this. Um, You know, the Hindenburg allegations are absolutely damning. Phil went over them, but they use language such as the order book is largely a mirage. It's largely fictitious. Um, Karen, I'll go to you. I know this is not a space that you are invested in, but but this harkens back to the to Nikola 
and Hindenburg Research also raising some allegations, which basically torpedo Nikola as well. Both of these are SPACs. Do we draw any conclusions about um, mm-hmm. the, the information that's available to investors in general because they go through a SPAC process as opposed yeah. to a traditional IPO? Uh, you know, I hadn't really considered that. That's a really good point. Um, I mean, you know, sometimes companies say the reason they chose to do a SPAC versus an IPO was sort of the certainty of the deal and the price, um, which they know exactly what they're going to get. Um, so I don't know. You make an interesting point. If I were Lordstown, you really don't want to have a Hindenburg piece specifically. I mean, they proved to have some very accurate information, maybe not entirely, but certainly in the Nikola case, they did. And so you've got to think that um, there's reason to believe that uh, they have some accurate information here as well. I'm actually surprised the stock isn't down more. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I, I like, you know, electric vehicles. I just, I, I'm not into the pre-revenue. That's sort of not my thing, but uh, I'm actually surprised it's not down more. I'm not surprised the SEC contacted them. They have to respond, but... Um, I think it hangs in there pretty well, considering. Yep. You don't really want to get that call, like, oh, Hindenburg. Ay, ay, ay. <laughs> the name alone is pretty terrible. <laughs> We've got a lot more ahead here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. A new retail king is coming to power. And this one is a prime pick for the spot. Plus, airline stocks were hit hard during the pandemic. But did the airlines really need a bailout? We're unpacking the details on this one. We've got that and a lot more when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Amazon shares soaring today as Wells Fargo crowns them. King of the retail rainforest, the firm out with a new research note saying the company has surpassed Walmart as the number one apparel retailer in the United States. Wells Fargo forecasting Amazon sales grew roughly 15 percent in 2020 to more than $41 billion, which is about 25 percent above rival Walmart. We're joined now by Ike Borchow, the senior analyst at Wells Fargo and author of the note. Ike, great to have you with us. Thanks, Melissa. Amazon has made great strides, and, and I know you pitted Amazon versus Walmart. I mean, those are two interesting players. You actually don't cover either of the companies. So is a takeaway from that that Amazon's massive gains in apparel, which includes in your research third-party sales, um, is that to the detriment of some of the companies that you do cover? Yeah, no. So we co-cover Amazon. I think it's a great question. So uh, we've got $40 billion, we estimate $40 billion of apparel or soft lines revenue that Amazon's doing. Um, you know, to put that in perspective, there's only six retailers who do over $10 billion uh, in all of the United States. So this is a big number, uh, and it's 12% share of all U.S. apparel. So this is a big number. But I think you got to look under the covers a bit. And this has been an ongoing uh, debate and dialogue about brands and retailers versus Amazon and soft lines for some time. I think if you look at that $40 billion, you know, our, our, our view is that that's probably a lot of basics, a lot of replenishment, a lot of private label business. I think where Amazon has still not made the inroads that they, that they really want to is on the fashion side. You know, fashion apparel, fashion denim, dresses, that, that kind of stuff. So I, I think that that continues. And so it'll, it's an ongoing debate that I think goes into 2021 and beyond. So, Ike, when I look at your your ratings, it seems like the Amazon Walmart debate, as you just answered, Melissa, has a problem with uh, or should have a problem with the high end luxury names. So a name that I've been long for uh, quite some time is one of your names, Capri Holdings. And with Burberry and Cuccinelli uh, pre-announcing positively recently, 
that's another tailwind for a name like Capri. Do you, I, I saw you had a $60 price target on it. Don't you think this thing could go much higher, given what you just said about Amazon and a Walmart not competing there? Yeah, so we, we totally agree. Uh, Capri is one of our top ideas. So we're, we're on the same page here. Um, what I would say to bring Amazon back into the conversation is that if you want to compete with Amazon, the middle is where you don't want to be. You want to go high, you want to go low. So when you talk about Capri, you know, you've got Michael Kors, accessible luxury, and then you know the crown jewel is really Versace and Jimmy Choo as well. So you're doing that on the high end. And, and then on the low end, think about off pricers, think about TJ Maxx, Ross Stores, Burlington. That's a good way to avoid it because the value that those retailers offer Amazon can't match. So again, going high and going low is the way to, is way to go. For Capri, look, I think this is one of the few calls that you got to stick with in retail right now. The group is run. Our group's up 75% in the last couple of months. I haven't said that since I think 2010. So it, it, it's great and it's great to be a bull in retail, but you, now you got to start looking at names that are going to have duration. And I think because of those luxury assets that Capri owns and because of what they're doing to stabilize the Michael Kors brand for the first time in a long time, that call has duration. That, that call can keep working. I, just the bottom line, it sounds like you're kind of not, not that concerned about Amazon sharing the market. I mean, it is about, as you outlined, a third of all online apparel purchases in the United States. You're not that worried about it because they are selling basics? I'd be worried if I sold basics. You know, right. I think uh, an, un- an underweight rated name, uh, Karen, to, uh, to call out would be Hanes Brands. So we have a sell mm-hmm. rating on Hanes Brands. Uh, you know, what Amazon is doing right now is they're going after, think about it, packed up T-shirts, bundled socks, right. underwear, you know, going at it with private label Amazon Essentials. It, it would concern me if I was a player in that space because that's really where they're targeting. I great to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you. Fascinating research. Ike Borachow. Um, Karen, how do, you, how do you sort of connect the dots with this uh, research report and, and the retail names you like? Well, a few, a few dots there. I mean, Walmart, of course, which I have a position in. Target, which I have a position in well, which does differentiate itself on fashion, which is something that he was talking about Amazon trying to do. Um, and then, you know, I think that I don't love hearing Amazon sort of taking over Walmart's position, but I think Amazon, Walmart, and Target have all gained share, and I don't think they're going to be giving all of that share back at all because they've been able to pivot, and and Amazon, of course, they were already doing online very, very well, but now I think Walmart and Target are doing it very well also, so I think they'll maintain that share, and the differentiation, even if you take out AWS, the Amazon valuation is so much higher, so... I'm still, I'm long all three, but my biggest position, Target, Walmart, then Amazon, much smaller. Yeah, I, I mean, Guy, for some reason I want to go to you on this, because I feel like you'll have some comments on Haynes Brands or, or whatnot. <laughs> um, but, I mean, it's worth noting that Target does have a multiple billion-dollar brands under its own umbrella that it has built itself. Yeah, there's no joy quite like the joy of opening up those bundled socks and underwear uh, from the Amazon every every few weeks. I mean, I just can't can, I can't control myself when they make their way to my door. But he makes a great point about Hanes Brands. I mean, you don't need Hanes Brands when you have Amazon. What I will say is, great job by Steve on Capri Holdings. And the other name that's going to be really interesting tomorrow is Dollar Gen reports before the bell. Uh, that stock obviously has come off significantly since the all-time high back in October. I think the setup for Dollar Gen is great. Whether they miss or not, I think if they miss, you buy the dip. Mm-hmm. And if they come out with a great quarter, you buy, you, know, you buy into the strength. So 
for an opportunity tomorrow after earnings. Dollar Gen to me is really interesting here. All right. Coming up, Morgan Stanley goes crypto. The investment bank making a big bet on Bitcoin. We'll bring you the details on that one next. Plus, we're all over the big rally in shares of Williams-Sonoma in the after hours. The stock is surging on results up 12 percent. We'll bring you the trade next. Welcome back to Fast Money. Morgan Stanley is getting in on the Bitcoin game in a story first reported by CNBC.com. The company will start offering its wealth management clients access to Bitcoin funds. It's the first big bank to take that step. Morgan Stanley is limiting Bitcoin investments to two and a half percent of a client's total net worth. So is this going to be a big win for Morgan Stanley Wealth Management? Tim, it's the only one offering it so far. And if it's a game of assets, it wants more assets under its umbrella. Look, look what it's meant to, to the Square platform, the cash, the cash app to have the ability to transact in Bitcoin. And, and but more importantly, like Morgan Stanley's won, you know, they, they've won the, the battle of the sector for the last nine months. Really, the, the two kind of game changing transactions with E-Trade. Uh, and, and, and ultimately, you know, you have a case where um, you know, they're moving to the asset management world or there, I should say, they're they're refocusing uh, almost exclusively on uh, annuity businesses. They've de-risked their model. Um, the, the share price is re-rated. It's outperformed the S&P by 50% since October. Um, so, yeah, this is another step. And I, I think it's, it's uh, part of you know, what have been some incredibly tactical moves. Uh, and, and I think some, you know, some, some real thought that's gone into this and also uh, trying to demographically get exposure to, let, let's face it, uh, a new generation of investors that care a lot more about this. So it's very smart. Yeah. Karen, is this a differentiator for Morgan Stanley? Uh, I, if it works, no, I don't think it will be because I think everyone else will follow, So, mm-hmm. um, which I expect to happen anyway. So for, for Tim, you know, brought up the good point of them wanting to wanting to go after clients that are younger, as you think of a Morgan Stanley or a J.P. Morgan client as older. And you also don't want your current clients to migrate if they do start to think, you know what, I need to have some Bitcoin as part of my portfolio. It's interesting they have that limitation on it. Do they have limitations on other asset classes? That's sort of... I don't know. That's interesting. Uh, yeah, but, um, I, don't, I don't know if they have that on gold, for instance, two and a half percent of your total net worth. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it's an interesting limitation there. There are right. all, all sorts of limitations on this, yeah. but still, first one to move in this direction. Coming up, billions of dollars of taxpayer money has gone to help the struggling airline industry over the past year. But has all of it been needed? We'll take on that debate. But first, we're all, all over the after hours action shares of Williams Sonoma. We're breaking down the numbers, bringing you the trade right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got another earnings alert for you. Shares of Williams-Sonoma rallying in the after hours now up more than 12 percent. Josh Lipton's got the details. Josh. So, Melissa, remember, heading into this report, it had enjoyed a nice recent rally. It was up about 20 percent over the past three months, now surging higher here in the after hours. As for the print beats on the bottom and the top, comparable brand revenue growth increased to about 26 percent. For fiscal 21, companies looking for mid to high single digit net revenue growth boosted the dividend. New stock repurchase authorization of one billion dollars. I caught up with Seth Basham over to Wedbush. Very strong results, he said, especially on gross margins driven by pricing power and a benign promotional environment. On the call, CEO Laura Albers says she expects strong demand to continue through 2021 and beyond. She cited favorable macro trends like high consumer confidence, a strong housing market, and a shift to e-commerce. Melissa, back to you. All right, Josh. Thanks, Josh Lipton. We should know Williams-Sonoma's got about an 8% uh, short interest. Guy, where do you you stand on WSM? 
Stay with it. I'm not going to make any funny jokes. I'll leave that to other members of the team. But I'll tell you that inventories were down 3.1% year over year on top of sales growth of about 24% up year over year, which means margins are going to continue to improve. I don't know what that dog is for. I'm not going to take the bait, Mel. I'm not going to do it. But I'll also tell you that we've been pretty steadfast in WSM. Stands to reason the next quarter is going to probably be even better uh, in terms of margins. Stay with the name. Can it keep going, Tim? I mean, if everything goes back to normal, I mean, if they had this boost because of the pandemic, if things go back to normal and you start spending on other things, you're not going to be spending on pots and pans and blankets. Well, a guy needs to spend on one of those big doggy cushions so that someone calms down a little bit and doesn't disrupt the show again. But, I, you know, I, I think you've got a case here where everything we talked about in the A block, uh, in other words, the start of the show in non-TV parlance, is, is why you buy Williams-Sonoma, why you buy Lazy Boy, why you buy uh, other home improvements. But, I, but look, Fed liquidity uh, going straight into people's homes, going straight into a lot of people getting stimulus checks that need it, a lot of people getting stimulus checks that don't need it. And it's going straight to William Sonoma uh, or Restoration Hardware or some of the other aforementioned names. So I think this trade is alive and well. I think the multiples, I don't think William Sonoma is terribly expensive. Uh, and I think the multiples in this sector should be trading higher. Some are executing more. And let's not forget about digital and loyalty and other drivers that are helping every other retail business. All right, coming up, a bailout bonanza. But did the airlines really need all the help they got? The traders take on this debate. Plus, it's been a bumpy year so far for shares of FedEx, but one option traders betting things are about to change. Fast Money's back in two. Not too late to sign up for the, for the Inclusion in Action Forum tomorrow at 1 p.m. Eastern. We'll take a look at what companies can do to create equity for all. Big names like Roger Ferguson, Melody Hobson, Tracy Ellis Ross. Register now at cnbcevents.com slash inclusion. Well, airline stocks were some of the hardest hit during the pandemic. Major industry players lost as much as 80 percent of their value from peak to trough last year and were forced to appeal to Congress multiple times for aid. But was the eventual bailout really needed? In a column for the New York Times dealbook, Andrew Ross Sorkin argues that, quote, once again, we have socialized an industry's losses and privatized its profits. Basically, what the government did was bail out shareholders. Tim Seymour, I'll go to you. You're a shareholder, you're a taxpayer. What do you think? Kind of caught in the middle on this one. Um, I, I, I guess my expectation was that, that especially the better balance sheets in the sector could have gotten through without the bailout. Um, I think the credits and the grants uh, across the board blindly for the sector are, are, are an example of what we've done in the past and are not fair. And again, think of executives at the airlines that are that are essentially uh, incentivized and, and paid and comp through share prices. So they were really bailed out. I, I know we bailed out uh, a lot of folks uh, in the airline industry, and I think we kept jobs uh, at almost full pay. Um, but think about the restaurant industry. Think Nothing was done for these people. Um, and and I, I don't think their businesses are going to come back, and, and so uh, in many cases ever. Um, so I think the inconsistency here is... Um, uh, a dynamic that's very, very frustrating. Um, but I, I recognize the strategic importance of the airline industry, especially to getting the economy back on track when it was time. Yeah. Um, Andrew makes the point that w with the $25 billion, the original bailout 
um, package. About 75,000 jobs were saved at a cost of about $300,000 each. Not sure if that's the right metric to gauge the success or, or the failure of this program, this particular program. Um, but Karen, what do you think? Numerous times in the past, airlines have gone through bankruptcy. They've done fine. So their argument that, you know, we had to keep the airline industry afloat, et cetera, they would have kept flying. They could have kept flying in bankruptcy. We've seen that time and time again. Yeah, I and mean, there's a lot of things in that article that I really agree with, and that's one of them. We've seen airlines in bankruptcy, and the other one is why this particular industry, right? You have Hilton and Hyatt and Marriott. They also employ hundreds of thousands of employees, and yet you didn't see anything remotely close to any kind of assistance like that. And I don't understand why you need to bail out the shareholders. Shareholders are, right, it's a risk asset, you know, we're not, they don't, the government shouldn't be giving us a free put that they're going to bail us out if things don't go well. So I'm really against that. And when we look at other really important bankruptcies, like a GM in the financial crisis, right? That's, that's I don't know how many jobs it was, but the government, they gave them money and they took a giant stake. And I don't understand why they weren't entitled to a giant stake mm -hmm. here. I know they got a tiny bit of warrants that Andrew cites in his piece, but nothing remotely close. So I don't see why they didn't do a big convert. Just to me, it just seemed like excellent lobbying by the airlines, unfortunate for the others and not necessary for the government to do. All right, Steve, just quickly, because you actually think that uh, it was right to bail them out. I do. And I think that, you know, we could argue over how they did it and what they should have gotten. But when you look at the uh, entire industry, it's not so much the direct industry. It's the fact that it's probably one point seven trillion. I think the estimates have been made as far as economic activity that's required, that's dependent on the airlines. And it's 10 million jobs, all those ancillary jobs and everything else that revolves around it. So. I, I do understand what everyone else is saying, but I think they had to act first. This is the first time we've been hit with a pandemic like this. So I'm okay if they used a sledgehammer on an ant right now. I think it was warranted. All right. Coming up, we're counting down to earnings from FedEx, why this quarter could be shipping up for the shipping giants. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Fast Money. FedEx reports earnings after the bell tomorrow. It's been a bumpy quarter for the shipping stock so far, but Mike co-spotted some options activity that could point to a big breakout. So, Mike, what'd you see? Yeah, so actually the uh, options traders seem to favor calls over puts by about two to one over the last 20 days. More than that today, actually. Right now, the options market is implying a move of about six and a quarter percent after they report earnings tomorrow. Right now, what we've seen, though, of course, over the last eight quarters is moves on average of over eight percent. Most of that activity is focused in the March 280 strike calls. They were paying about three dollars for those. So buyers are, of those calls are betting that FedEx will make a move of about that implied amount, six and a quarter percent or more to the upside by the end of the week. Uh, Karen, you've got a, a sizable position, in your words, <laughs> in FedEx at this point. What are you looking for? Yes, I do. I'm looking for a good quarter. The only fly in the ointment that I see is most likely would be something from the weather. It doesn't, this quarter does include February, so you had some very bad weather in there. But uh, I think we're going to see improvement from ground. And I'm optimistic and I'm, I'm, I'm long, very long. All right. Thanks, Mike, for that. Uh, for more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That's Friday at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Guess what? Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim Seymour. Solange Mel, happy St. Patty's Day. Wayfair, going higher with all of these other home improvement or uh, furnishing shops. I, I like Wayfair. Karen Feinerman. Yeah, I can't let Guy's dog take the fall for my dog's barking, so... <laughs> 
Jesse is c- coming clean. Um, I'm going to the. Da- I'm going home with the one that brought me. I think FedEx. That's my final trade. Steve Grasso. Olin, OLN, it's up 31% in the last nine days. I think it probably goes another 50% higher from here. Olin. Guy Dami. See, Karen, see, Karen, I love that. Isn't that great? I mean, she's, I love what she just did there. And by the way, it's dance with the girl you took to the prom or VC Vice. He doesn't really matter. But Lockheed <laughs> Martin, LMT, aerospace defense stocks um, getting off the mat, Mel. Back to you. <laughs> Thank you for watching Fast Money. We'll see you back here at 5 for more Fast. Meantime, don't go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now.